You know, when I was in law school, we uh, often we would have a class, and that class would meet three times a week, 15 weeks long. This isn't my normal spot. This is going to get me all off. There we go. Come on, Doug, with all your NASA, whatever that is there. All right. It's like a rocket ship. <laughs> We'd have class three times a week, right? For 15 weeks, uh, you read so much. Like, the lawyers are just overly reading. I don't know what their problem is, but there's a lot of reading, a lot of stuff going on. We're studying. At the end of the semester, we would have an exam, okay? It'd usually be about three hours long, written exam. And that exam was 100% of your grade. So you go the whole time, right? All the studying, all the work, whatever. And if you don't do well on this exam, that's it. No extra credit, no, I don't know what they give these days, points for being there or something. We don't get any of that, okay? Everybody's not the same. We don't all get a prize. You pass the exam, Burger King. Those are your two options, okay? Nothing wrong with Burger King, by the way. I love Bur obviously, I love Burger King, so it would have been a fine alternative for me. A lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. You got to think about the thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars you're investing in school and countless hours of work and sacrifice for your family and all the rest to go and do all this, and then it all comes down to three hours with a pen and a little blue book that I'm writing in. And by the way, my handwriting, terrible. So I have to hope they can read that too. The handwriting, we used to get grades for handwriting when I was in school, it's the only grade I ever got spanked for, okay? <laughs> I got unsatisfactory in handwriting, and it was like, look, you get unsatisfactory in handwriting again, you're getting whooped, right? And I'm like, okay, I got unsatisfactory in handwriting again, right? So out came the paddle, it was, I mean, tremendously effective. My handwriting is still terrible, okay? So, so there, Dad. Anyway, you get the point. I was supposed to work harder in school. Um, I guess it did work because I ended up in law school, so that, that, uh, I kept going to school. Um, there's one test for the whole semester of work. These were very important tests, and here's the thing. There was one answer that I could have given on these tests, on every one of them, would have been very helpful to my grade, but it would have been very easy. That answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Now, I never wrote that on one of my tests for two reasons. One, I usually studied very hard, so I did know the answer. Two, at that time in my life, I don't think I would have ever admitted that I didn't know about anything. I just would have made something up. So I never did use it. But I can tell you that I wouldn't have gotten very far if I did. If my professor saw a test and said, I don't know, I'm going to give it an F, right? Fail. And I can tell you that I wouldn't get very far with the argument that I've heard a lot of people give these days in other contexts. And here, here's the argument. How can anyone know? Nobody really knows the answers. And isn't it arrogant to think that you can know? I bet some students had different answers on their test, professor. How dare you say that some of those were better than other ones of those, right? How can you tell some that they're wrong and others that they're right? Who do you think you are, professor? Now, had I done that, it would not have changed my grade. <laughs> not one bit, okay? I would still have an F, and the professor would say, after laughing at my ridiculous argument, he'd say this. He'd say, you had the textbook. I was available to teach you. We studied the material three times a week for 15 weeks. There were right answers and wrong answers, and I don't know was the wrong answer. You have now failed. Go to Burger King. That's what he would have said, or she. It may seem harsh to some of you to say that, but it's reality. It's reality, okay? The test comes eventually in many areas, and you will not pass with the answer, I don't know. But there are a lot of people who treat much more important areas of life than some law school test this same way. They treat God this way. From the agnostic who just doesn't believe that they can know whether God exists or not. I just don't know. I just don't think we can know. To the apatheist who doesn't care, doesn't even want to try to find out the answers. To the many Christians who look at the question of God and learn the absolute minimum about who he is and what he wants for their lives and don't seem to care about really knowing him. 
Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton are sociologists, okay? One of them is at Notre Dame. I think the other one's at Clemson. Believers, I think. Uh, they were involved in an extensive study of U.S. teenagers in the early 2000s, okay? So this was like 2002, 2003. They wrote a book about it. came out in 2005. Uh, the book is called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. They interviewed thousands of teenagers over the phone and hundreds of teenagers in these personal in-depth interviews where they would drive to some town somewhere and they'd meet with these teenagers and they'd spend all this time talking with them and getting all this information so that they could then kind of get a feel for the temperature, the zeitgeist of where society was going, where are we headed, what do these teenagers think, and they got a lot of their ideas about the world and about religion specifically. One of the things they discovered was that a common view of God among these teenagers was relativistic. Kind of believe what you want. Believe what you want. It's just your opinion. There was an interview with one 15-year-old that they put in the book. It went like this. What do you say to people who have different, a different view of God than you? Teenager says this. I couldn't say anything. It's their opinion. I have my own opinion. The questioner says, are you right? Ah, uh, I don't know. I have no idea, but is there a right or a wrong answer when it comes to God? Teenager says, there is no right answer. Questioner says, why not? Teenager says, there isn't a wrong answer because it's God. You can't prove. It's just what you believe. It's not, by the way, just what you believe. It's about whether you believe what is true. Extremely important. How can we believe in our society that we know, we know all kinds of things about incredibly unimportant things? Right? I played a game of trivial whatever with my wife and son the other day, and some of those questions, especially like the pop culture music ones. First of all, that's not music, what they're asking about. Just <laughs> FYI. Second of all, I have no idea who these people are. But... Trivia. We know stuff about trivia. And when it comes to God, we go, I don't know. I don't think we can know. I'll be on the internet all day to learn about my favorite rock star, sports star, whatever it is. I'm into comic books. I'm into video games. I'm into whatever. I learn about it. When it comes to God, it's like, I don't think you can know anything. I won't bother. God is the most awesome and glorious and important person in all of reality. And we spend our time finding out who Katy Perry is. No offense to her, whoever that is. <laughs> Listen, if God is just a mystery to be explored, you want me to pull this away? Sorry, they're signaling me back there. Is that better? More? Good, all right. Okay, I gotta say this again. Listen, if God is just a mystery to be explored, and guessed at, then you can be wrong about him, and that's okay. It would kind of be an opinion type thing. Like, what do you think about strawberry ice cream? You like it? <laughs> maybe you do, maybe you don't. Let's explore the mystery. But if God is what he has said he is, which is God, and if God is knowable as he says he is knowable, as we read in Romans 1, that everything there is to know about him can be known, then here's the deal. You are responsible. You're responsible to be correct about who God is and what you believe about God. There is no, well, that was my opinion, that was her opinion, whatever. No, no, no. When it comes down to it, you are responsible to know that which can easily be known, and God tells us he is right there to be known. God's not a mystery to be explored. He's God. Romans 1, 18 through 20. If you want to read a Bible, there should be in the seats in front of you. If you don't have one at home, take one of those with you. That's our gift, okay? Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth 
in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When you say to somebody who says, I don't know if there's a God or whatever, and you go, look at the tree. And they go, I don't know. That's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Explain the tree. Well, I can't really explain it. Maybe aliens put it there. <sighs> Come on. Yeah, a big alien and God. You're suppressing it. Look at your body, okay? This is not random chance. You know what random chance looks like. Start a fire and have everything going, whatever, and go look what's there. It's not going to be, oh, look, it's people. No. And trees. No, it's going to be whatever. You see a tornado go through a trailer park, right? You've seen this because the trailers, they don't stay on the ground. They haven't learned that in the South yet. I don't know why. They're in Tornado Alley. They're like, single wide that's not tied down at all. We'll be fine. It's not going to hit us. There they go. Anyway, you go in there. You see that. Rarely what you see is, oh, it made the Eiffel Tower. No, it doesn't do that. What may be known about God is able to be seen. Even things as significant as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are shown in the seasons that God has given us. Everything is there to be seen. People suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Remember that law professor. If I said, I don't know, I would not get away with that. And if I'm not going to get away with that on some constitutional law test, you're not going to get away with it when it comes to God. Because much like the professor, God can say the same kind of thing, even much more powerfully so. He'll say this, you have the Bible. You got the textbook. The information's there. You have my church and the teaching of the church. You have the Holy Spirit drawing you. If you can hear me right now, chances are the Holy Spirit is drawing you. If you don't know Christ, he's drawing you to him. If you know him already, he's drawing you to know more about who he is. You have all of creation to look at. And you want to put down the answer when it comes to God, I don't know. It's not going to work. You don't know only if you're doing what the scripture says here and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we've been in a series called White Lies. Exposing Half-Truths and Protecting the Gospel. That's the name of the series. I believe this is number 17. So we've been in it for a little while. And honestly, we could do this for a long time. We're, we're probably going to end this real soon. But we could do it for a long time because there's a lot of white lies out there, right? We're looking at the lies, the deception. Some of them are white lies. Some of them are just outright, nonsensical, demonic lies from hell. Okay? There's sort of both in this. But we've been kind of going through the cultural half-truths and the flat-out lies. And today we're dealing with moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I know that sounds exciting. I may use the term MTD sometimes because I don't know how many times this morning I want to say moralistic, therapeutic deism. So if I say MTD, I mean moralistic, therapeutic deism, okay? All right, let's pray. Let's pray as we get into the study. Father, I just ask that you be with us with this place. I thank you for these baptisms. I thank you for new life in you. I thank you for what you've done for me. I thank you for what you've done for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that we would understand these things because, God, if we don't understand these things, we're not going to find the places in ourselves where we're getting off course. And then we're not going to be able to be your church and draw other people to be your disciples because we don't even know what they're dealing with or how they're thinking. Lord, help us to understand that we may strategize. So we're supposed to be wise, Lord. We're supposed to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Help us to be able to do that. Cleanse us, Lord, in our hearts and our minds from false beliefs. Love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I mentioned the sociologist Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton earlier, and, and I mentioned their book, okay? Now, in their study of American teens, they found a common theme, basically a religious system that was extremely common to these teenagers all over the country, seen to be practiced by many, many of these young people. They called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
or MTD. Now, they, the authors, they describe the basic beliefs of MTD as this. One, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay, we're kind of okay there. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Apparently, they have not read the other books. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to solve a problem. Five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, that one could be true. Just never met a good person, except for Jesus. I want you to remember something as we study this. These were teenagers, right? But this is early 2000s, so most of these teenagers are in their late 20s, early 30s now. The folks who are believing this commonly are now that age. Some of them may have even, you know, maybe at least the ones in their 30s may have even moved out of their parents' house by now. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. Young people, I'm kidding. Don't worry, I'm going to get it at your parents here in a minute. They're, everyone's everyone's going to get it today. The words moralistic, therapeutic, and deism are sort of complicated words, so I want to start with what the authors say about these words. So the moralistic part, this is what, this is what they say from the book. First, moralistic, therapeutic deism is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. That means being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, responsible, at work on self-improvement, taking care of one's health, and doing one's best to be successful. Now, the word, mor the word morality, historically, generally, has a meaning connected to what's right and what's wrong. It is objective. Objective, okay? And that means that there's a right and a wrong, and it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's true. You can be closer to what's true or further from what's true, but you aren't determining what's true. That's what morality has kind of traditionally meant. But here we have the MTD believers reshaping morality in their own way. Morality is about being nice, kind, pleasant, respectful, etc. All those can be good things. It can be good to, to be those things, but they are by no means the total of what is meant when we say being moral or being good. To be moral is to follow the commands God has given us. That's what being moral is, to live as God has designed us to live. To do his will, not our own will. That's what morality is about. Morality is a far, far, far higher, grander, deeper, wider thing than being respectful. And it's certainly a much higher thing than just being nice. Sometimes if you're going to be moral, you can't be nice. Notice that central to MTD. They say central to living a good and happy life. Moralism is central to living a good and happy life. Now that, that, that sentence may just go whoosh right by us but it's got some real problems. First of all, the good is doing what God calls us to do. That's what good is. Only God is good. Only God is good. We do good and see good when we seek God in his will. Jesus says in Luke 18, 19, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. It's kind of playing this thing with this guy, right? You're calling me good, meaning you're recognizing that I'm God? Because that's who I am. But his point is, only God is good. Only God is good. So if we're going to be good, we're going to be like God, following what God has called us to do. Also, being happy and being good do not always go together. This is pretty important for you to understand. In fact, they can be mutually exclusive. They can be oil and water. Sometimes being happy and being good can happen at the same time. That's why so many people find it hard to do good. Look, if doing good always made you happy, why are people such a mess? Like, they just don't want to be happy. No, they want to be happy. That's why they're a mess. That's why they're a mess. 
You cannot conflate or join together happiness and goodness. You can't do it, or you will define good as what? That which makes me happy. That's what's good now. Not what God wants for me, but good becomes what makes me happy. Happiness is a short-lived, fleeting feeling that you get when you experience pleasure. It's great. Nothing wrong with it. But how many people have left their spouse or cheated on their spouse because they weren't happy often enough? How many people have rejected the goodness of God because it didn't make them as happy as they thought they would be? How many people have compromised their character because they wanted to do things they thought would make them happy? I can tell you, I have. Many times. Happiness and goodness do not always go together. Look at who Jesus actually tells us to do good to. You ready? Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't make me happy to do good to those who hate me. It doesn't make me happy. I'm like, yes! Woo! It's not how it feels. You know what it feels like? Obedience. And sometimes obedience doesn't feel like happiness. I do it because it's good. Because it's what my Lord and King Jesus Christ has commanded me to do. That's why I do it. Happiness and pleasure are wonderful gifts from God. But they are not the goal of life. Okay? They're not the meaning of life or any other nonsense that we've tried to make them into in our current world. If you sell to people happiness, you tell them about Jesus and you go, you're going to be happy. You find Jesus, you're going to be happy all the time. First of all, you're lying. Second of all, you're going to have some very unhappy Christ followers when they realize that the happy train ends about five minutes in. (laughs) When your family finds out that you're a Christian and rejects you. When you have to stand for what's right instead of for what's wrong. When you have to resist temptations and the devil so that he'll flee from you. When you have to go through the difficult times of doing good. How about doing good to those who hate you? I'm not happy. This isn't happy. That guy, he told me I'd be happy. That's why you never hear me preaching happy, happy, Jesus, happy. <laughs> not going to happen. Not that I have any problem with happiness. I like, I'm usually pretty happy. Right? Jolly, I'm fat. It's, it's good. It goes along. <laughs> Living the good life gives me much more than happiness. It gives me joy. Joy is deep and lasting, and I can have joy even when I'm unhappy. In fact, especially when I'm unhappy. I have joy for my hope in Jesus. Some of us are like, man, I don't feel that joy. Well, if you're looking for happiness, you're not going to feel the joy. Joy is not happiness. Joy is that deep knowledge that you are Christ's. That deep understanding that you've been forgiven. That hope in the resurrection of your body and living forever with God. And with all these things we've done to make us happy that we've been forgiven of, that they're going to be gone, washed away. That they're as far as east is from west and that we're going to spend eternity with one another and most importantly, with God. That's where joy comes. Joy is that deep abiding knowledge. It's the thing that helps you when everything else is difficult. Happiness is, eh, you know, it's okay. It's okay. But it isn't the goal of life. Another thing the authors discovered was important to the MTD believers as it relates to living a moral life is It's important to feel good about yourself. It's important to feel good about yourself. Here's a quote from the authors. Feeling good about oneself is thus also an essential aspect of living a moral life. You are morally required to feel good about yourself. Let me explain something to you before all of you start feeling too good about yourselves. You're a disaster just like me. 
but for Jesus. Let me just explain something to you. The more truly moral you become, the more Christ-like you become, the more you understand how far you've missed the mark. And the more you understand how far you missed the mark, the more you feel bad, not good, about yourself. And the worse you feel about yourself, the closer you are to the kind of humility that the Holy Spirit uses to draw you to the cross and the grace and forgiveness of God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Christ followers feel good about Christ. We feel good that he sacrificed his life so that God would look at his righteousness instead of our sin. I feel great about myself in Christ. I feel awful about myself outside of Christ, as I should. I don't feel good about myself as some sort of moral rule. I feel good about myself because he took my shame away. Because I've been made new in him. Not because I was good, but because he's made me good. Yeah, you can feel good about that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Why do the old things need to pass away? Because they weren't things that you could feel good about yourself about. But all things become new. Praise God for his righteousness. Praise God for the peace I have because of the suffering that he bore for me. It's just dispensed with the white lie, the dark lie, that people should all feel good about themselves. That's nonsense. I would use a more significant word, but I'm not supposed to. People are selfish enough without us perpetuating the lie that everyone should feel good about themselves all the time. We're sinners. We're sinners. The wrath of God is literally being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Does that sound like people who should feel good about themselves? No. It's not. The scriptures say in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the gift of God, the free gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness for our actions and for our wicked thoughts and for our rebellion and for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and for all of that that we're happy about, that we're joyful about. That's what we can feel good about, who we are now in Christ without declaring and confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, there is nothing to feel good about. Nothing. If we don't have Jesus paying the wages of our sin with his death, we don't have anything but a waiting game to pay those wages ourselves. Those who are not in Christ are already paying them because you're spiritually dead. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. If you're listening to this and you're not in Christ, you're spiritually dead. It's a reason you feel the way you do. There's a reason it's never enough. There's a reason you have to make yourself feel good about yourself. And here's the reason. You shouldn't feel good about yourself. You should understand that you're in need of a Savior. As everyone here that got baptized this morning confessed, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And every one of them confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and identify themselves with his resurrection. And because of that, they can feel good about themselves. Every Christ follower can feel good about yourself, not because it's a moral rule to feel good about yourself, but because he has taken your shame away. And he can do that for anyone. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is good news. This is for you today. If you do not know Jesus, you're not hearing this by accident. The Holy Spirit is here drawing you. When we have Jesus, we can fully feel good about ourselves as he redeems all the gifts he designs us to have. Because, you're, because people are thinking, well, now hang on, why should they feel better about themselves? There are some very talented people who have lots of gifts who even do really nice things sometimes and help people and so on. Why shouldn't they feel good about themselves? Because they're broken, they're dead, that's why. But all those gifts that they have, absolutely. God didn't make a mistake in designing you 
You just need to be in him to fully experience who he's made you to be. You are becoming less you when you give yourself to Jesus. You're becoming way more you and for eternity. When we get caught up in this false sense of self-esteem, we're a mess. We don't, we don't get, that's not the cult that we want to be a part of. We want to come home as a prodigal son and be accepted by our father because he's waiting there for you. This is not about looking inside yourself and forgiving yourself and relying on the power of positivity as you can find at plenty of little conferences where they get you to rah-rah and jump up and down and feel happy for a minute. And that power of positivity without Jesus Christ will take you straight to hell and separation from God forever. That's reality. I'm not going to lie to you about it. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, this leads to the therapeutic part of moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what the authors say about the term therapeutic. What appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is certainly about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. Secure, peaceful? Let me tell you something, Christ followers. Let me just put it out there for you. We are not secure in this world, as to this world. And we are not going to be secure as to this world before the Lord Jesus returns. If you're looking for security, you came to the wrong place. This is an adventure. It's dangerous. Following Christ is for warriors who God gives the ability to have courage and be brave. Because security is not promise. Listen to Paul's story and tell me you think Christ followers live a life of promised security. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds safe? Sounds secure? Mm, reproaches, persecutions. Happy, happy. We're not secure. And listen, we're not at peace with the world, and we will never be at peace with the world until Jesus Christ returns. Till our Lord comes back, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and does make all things new, there's no peace with the world. John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Trouble. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We are promised tribulation in the world, not peace, but we are promised peace in Christ. If you're seeking it somewhere else, you will not find it. Best case scenario, you go along with the world, become at enmity with God, and maybe you'll feel some sense of it for a little while before they chew you up and spit you out. Because the world is run by Satan, and he's a liar and a murderer. And he wants to destroy you. You go his way, you're enmity with God. You go God's way, you'll have peace in Christ, but trouble in the world. But eternity with him. Not crying, no pain. Living, becoming fully who you are. We're not going to be on clouds with diapers and harps. This is not a York Peppermint Patty commercial. Okay? You're going to be you, all of you. Everything that you do when you go to work and you're doing this thing, there's some things, you know how work is, there's some things you're good at and you like, and then there's like the other 90%, right, <laughs> at work. The things you're good at and you like, that's what you're going to do, whatever that is, except times a million. Because all the toil that comes from the fall is gone. And work is pleasure, joy. You're going to be useful for eternity. We're promised tribulation, though, for now. And you've got to be tough. No, and there's no room to not be tough. If you've been a Christian very long, you know that. If you've been a serious Christian, you really know that. Maybe moralistic therapeutic deism is a way to not be a serious Christian so that you don't have to deal with what's tough. 
And you can pretend like everything's peaceful and secure and that that's the goal of life. If your goal is peace and security with the world, again, you've misunderstood Christianity. It's never been what it is. It's about transforming. It's about transforming first you and then others. It's about making disciples for Jesus Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded, whether it makes them happy or not. Because we are understanding that we're already seated. Whoop, hey, we're already seated in the heavenly places. I'm already living that eternal life now. You can't therapy your way to peace and security. You can't self-help your way to peace and security. Go to the bookstore, the ones that are left, and go find that self-help section. And you got book after book after shelf after shelf of people telling you how to live your best life now. It's bull. Billion-dollar industry that is absolute nonsense. I'm not saying there's nothing valuable in any of it. Yeah, I'm pretty much saying that. <laughs> All of that, and you could have taken a free Bible from the seat in front of you and been a thousand miles ahead of anything they're saying. You can't self-help your way to peace and security. You can't therapy your way there. Your security is in your salvation. That's where you're secure, in your salvation, in your relationship with Jesus, who is with us always, even to the end of the age, amen, who will never leave you nor forsake you. It's not to be found anywhere else. All right, let's get finished up here. Back to the authors. Let's talk about deism, what they mean by deism. Quote from the book again. Finally, moralistic therapeutic deism is about belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. <laughs> How convenient <laughs> is this deism in MTD? Some of you are like, this sounds, where's that church? A God who made everything and makes us feel good when the sun's shining? Gives us a moral order, but is only involved when we want him? God's not like that at all. Nor does the scripture ever so much as hint at such a thing. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is not some weak boyfriend. Right? <laughs> You call him up when you're feeling down and you don't have anybody to hang out with, and you're like, come on over, Johnny. And he, that's my son-in-law's name. I did not do that on purpose. I don't know. So, <laughs> come on over, Patrick. <laughs> this was only the first couple years of the relationship. But anyway, come on over. Make me feel better. And the weak boyfriend goes over because they're, they're just happy to be there. But you spend a little time with them. They come over and they do whatever you want. And then you're like, I'm done with you. Go over here. You think God's like that? You think you can treat him like that? God is a consuming fire. He made you. He designed you. He's passionately in love with you. He wants to spend eternity, you and him, growing in layers and deepness of love together. That's who he is. You can reject him. But please don't call him a weak boyfriend who shows up when you need him. That's nonsense. He knits you together in your mother's womb. You think he doesn't care? He knows every hair in your head. Some of you, that's easier than others. It's like three. That's not that hard. I don't... Listen, he's passionate, and he's jealous for you. He's jealous for you. You're not going to go follow and make anything else, any other idol, number one in your life, because God is passionate, and he's burning, and he's a consuming fire, and he's coming after that relationship with you. There when you need him and not there when you don't. You need him when you think you don't. That's when you need him. I don't know where this deist idea of God came from, but it's nonsense on stilts. God loves you with a real and everlasting love. Never believe that he's sitting in some big chair eating potato chips, watching what we're doing and being like, I hope to have a good time today. 
hope it all works out. Oh, somebody needs, you know, one of the teenagers in the book says, like, if you need $50 and God makes it show up, that's God, right? Like, okay, maybe, but like, that's what you think he's doing? Oh, this guy needs 50 bucks. Let's make sure he finds 50 bucks on the floor. That's not what's happening. God is thinking about you right now. You. He's obsessed with you because you're his creation. He thinks about you more than you think about your kids or your spouse or the rock star that you read about all the time, whatever it is. He's constantly thinking thoughts towards you. This is no God of deism. This is the everlasting Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the Ancient of Days. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is no joke. God loves you with a real and everlasting love. So where did these teens in the early 2000s come up with this false religion of moralistic therapeutic deism? You know, teenagers. It's their fault, right? No. Listen to this. This is a longer quote from the book, so hang with me, but this is incredibly important. Our conversations with ordinary teenagers around the country made clear to us that in most cases, teenage religion and spirituality in the United States are much better understood as largely reflecting the world of adult religion, especially parental religion, the religion of their parents, and are in strong continuity with it. Few teenagers today are rejecting or reacting against the adult religion into which they are being socialized. Rather, most are living out their religious lives in very conventional and accommodating ways. The religion and spirituality of most teenagers actually strike us as very powerfully reflecting the contours, priorities, expectations, and structures of the larger adult world into which adolescents are being socialized. Okay, if you didn't fully pick that up, what the authors are trying to get across, I want you to think back to a commercial, late 80s, early 90s. Kids sitting in his bed, listening to like the big headphones. Remember the ones that had foam on them and stuff? He's listening to the headphones. His dad comes in with his box. It's like a cigar-sized box or whatever. He's, son, what's going on? He takes the headphones off and he's like, son, what is this? He opens this thing. It's got a bunch of marijuana in it. Where did you get this? And, he, and he's like, hey, I did. The kid's kind of, and he's like, where did you learn how to do this? And the kid goes, from you, all right? I learned it from watching you. You guys remember this commercial? Is this just me? Okay. You guys are looking at me like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is a popular commercial. Where did the MTD come from? They learned it from watching us. They didn't pick this up on their own. The teenagers were simply reflecting where religion has gone. I wonder why the world's turned so bad. Because you wanted to believe in a God that just made you happy, showed up when you wanted him, didn't show up when you didn't want him, where you didn't have to really read the Bible, where you could say, I don't really know, you have an opinion, I have an opinion, and whatever. And here we are, at the end of the age. That's where we are. It wasn't the teenagers who invented this. They're just a reflection of what they saw. A generation of religious people with little understanding of what it means to follow God, with little understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. People who are more concerned with security and peace and happiness and getting along with others amiably than with honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the consuming fire who wants real relationship, the one who we're going to be with for eternity. You're going to trade a little pleasure on this side while you ignore God for the God that you're going to be with literally forever? Not a good trade, but we've been making it. God is not a God just to be called on when there's trouble. For sure, do that. But he's to be acknowledged in all of your life. And these kids' parents didn't do that. They might acknowledge him on Sunday, however many weeks a year. Maybe they even say a prayer at dinner, but they didn't talk about him. These, a lot of these kids, they couldn't, they couldn't explain the basics of the Christian faith. You know why? What they found was, in a lot of cases, an adult had never sat down and actually talked about theological truth with their kid. No adult, not a pastor, not a youth pastor, nobody had sat down face to face and said, do you understand what's going on in this book? Do you understand who Jesus is? Didn't happen. So they were like, yeah, God, you know, God. You know, you pray sometimes, whatever. They didn't know anything. 
Why? Because they weren't taught. Why? Because we've been too preoccupied with our selfish desires to get serious about raising a generation of warriors who's ready to face the world and stop trying to win in the world's way and recognize we've already won, we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And move forward. As C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, the demons are afraid when they really look at the church, strong like an army with banners. But when you walk in, sometimes it doesn't look like that. Sometimes it looks like people who are just like, yeah, I'm here to check this box. I move on. That's not you. Acts Church is legit. But make sure it doesn't become us. American individualism is a little bit to blame because transformation takes a willingness to let God transform. And we resist transformation because it requires submission. And I have noticed that politically right and left, whatever, whatever group you want to talk about, they all have this one same thing. They sure don't want to submit to anything. If you're going to be a Christ follower, you better submit to God. And even his spiritual authority in the church, there's all kinds of submission going on. You've got to submit to your spouse. You've got to submit to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got all kinds of submission when it's Christ that you're really submitting to. Well, we don't like that, but that's what transformation requires. According to the authors of this book, this lends itself to this particular kind of thinking, which is very upsetting to me. Thinking of religion as something one chooses to use, not something which one devotes oneself or gives one's life. Instead of giving your life away to it, religion becomes something you use. That's just called Aladdin, okay? Give me this. Go back in the bottle. I've got to do some shady stuff. Give me this. That's using religion. Now, we don't use religion. Jesus Christ, we've given our lives to. That's what this is about. You want to become part of this family? Part of this local expression of the body of Christ, you better be serious. It's going to get real uncomfortable otherwise. It's ain't a country club. It's ain't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. We're doing the real thing. Moralistic therapeutic deism is a lie that leads to apathy, deconstruction of faith, and lukewarm religion. Revelation 3, 14 through 19. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither, hot, nor, neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is what I want to see for the church, all over this country particularly, but all over the world. I want us to be zealous and repent. Yeah. I want us to turn from a Christianity that has led to this MTD nonsense and the progressive Christianity that we talked about before and all these shades of people who want to get, they want to have their little ears scratched. Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me that God's going to give me everything. He's going to make me a winner, but he's not going to require anything of me. We need to repent and be zealous for God. Christ's church must not become wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Our riches must be in Christ. That means our lives are his. Our investment is in his kingdom, which will not fade away. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the thing with MTD if you really want to break it down. It's about treasures on earth. 
peace, prosperity, happiness. Think about the way they're talking about it. Getting along with everybody, getting along with the world, feeling good, being happy, whatever. That's about treasures here. Listen, where do you want your investment? Somewhere where moth and rust destroy or somewhere where nothing fades away? Now, that takes some faith. But what are you doing here wasting your Sunday if you don't have that? We're investing in eternity. MTD is a belief system for people who need to call on God. These people need to call on God for his power to think and to have courage. That's how they're going to get out of it. We need to give our lives to him fully and stop looking for peace and joy in the world where neither will be found ever, ever. Peace and joy are not going to be found in the world. Let's end with this verse, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, thousands of years of believers who have fought the good fight, right? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you'd be with us. Lord, for those who are struggling with beliefs that look like moralistic, therapeutic deism, God, give us everything we need to draw them back out, to get them off the couch and back on the battle lines. Lord, give us wisdom. Give us courage. Give us strength. Lord, we prayed so many times recently that you would start to bring people into this church who are serious about you, who want to be part of the real thing, and that we would see people get baptized. You've answered prayer. That we would see people who want to know Jesus. You've answered prayer. That we would send people who want to be taught all that he's commanded. You've answered prayer. God, keep answering our prayers. Build your church not to look for peace with the world because it's not happening. Not to look for security because that's not happening. But to look for the adventure that we have in you, trusting you at all times that we have peace in you. That whatever happens, we're going to be with you. God, be with those who are sick, with those who are struggling. Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit to heal But, Lord, more than those who are suffering with physical illness, I pray for those who are suffering with spiritual death and deadness. Because, God, you can have my body, my legs, my arms. You can have all of that as long as I can be with you spiritually. There's nothing more important than my life in you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, they would feel the same way and they would actually go out into the world and with salt and light, seasoned with salt and kindness, push up against this nonsense, these white lies, and draw people to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Be with us this week. Praise your name, God. Amen.